This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. And today, we're going to talk about a very serious topic. And that has to do with food insecurity. And it has to do with one of the major social drivers impacting health. We are delighted that we've got Tawani Cruz with us. She is the Director of Community Health Improvement for Dallas and Rockwell Counties for Texas Health Resources. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, for our listeners, they may not understand the concept of a food desert or a food swamp. Could you explain to them what we're talking about? Happy to. So we'll start off with food deserts. Um, Food deserts are residential areas with limited access to affordable and nutritious foods. So to determine if an area is a food desert, researchers usually assess the distance between someone's home and the supermarket. So the U.S. Department of Agriculture defines food deserts as a distance of more than one mile to the nearest supermarket, that's for urban areas, and then 10 miles for a rural area. And while improving access to supermarkets and grocery stores um, may increase the chances that an individual will be able to find healthier food, it doesn't necessarily mean that they will choose or can afford healthier options. Now, on a food swamp, is that defined any differently? It's interesting that you ask about a food swamp because we really don't talk about food swamps enough, really, uh, and they have a huge impact on the community. The food swamp is a little bit different from a food desert in that it's an area where food options um, are available, but they are usually high-calorie fast foods or junk foods as opposed to healthier food options. So there may be a grocery store available, but fast food joints far outnumber the healthier options. And some recent research published in the um, International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health showed that food swamps actually have a higher impact on obesity in adults than the lack of access to a full service grocery store. You know, that's amazing. What a finding there that a a food swamp can actually affect obesity in a much more negative way. You know, we realize that there are food deserts, unfortunately, all across this nation. If you had to just look at North Texas, what seems to be the areas that have the most food deserts? There are a number of areas throughout North Texas where there's limited or low access to food, but the trouble spots really are the locations where fresh food is scarce, and then the communities are also considered low-income. On top of that, there's also the added burdens of limited access to transportation, which ultimately defines and determines whether you, where and whether you can go purchase food. And so you'll find food deserts in south and uh, southeast Fort Worth, throughout the eastern part of Irving, south of 183, um, extensively throughout south and southern Dallas, in Grand Prairie, central Denton County, even as far as eastern um, Plano and McKinney. But southern Dallas really is by far the largest food desert. You know, with, with that that you mentioned, southern Dallas is the largest. What would you say 
unfortunately, are factors that cause this? Well, um, food deserts, they, they naturally arise from a growth in population that isn't accompanied by development. There's a lack of transportation for adequate uh, public transit that makes it difficult as well for residents to reach options elsewhere. Um, There's some additional factors related to businesses that fail because the community does not have sufficient financial resources to keep the grocery stores in business. Um, There's there's some complementary factors as well with the crime and fear, uh, which usually lead to decreased interest from developers and may result in, in decaying businesses. You know, so there's a number of factors that contribute to this um, growth of food deserts in specific areas. And I would guess that the increase in corner stores and dollar stores, um, while they help to provide access to staple items such as milk, butter, eggs, things of that nature, uh, also increase the access to prepackaged foods as opposed to fresh foods. And these prepackaged foods tend to be loaded with fat, sodium, sugar, which we know are linked to diabetes, obesity, hypertension, and other chronic diseases that plague these very same communities. So overall, um, there's definitely a a number of factors that contribute to the growth of food deserts. You know, to help our listeners comprehend and really understand this, can you tell us a little bit about how and when the problem has progressed in South Dallas? And if you have any statistics Could you share those? Absolutely. This is a very tricky and and difficult question to answer. Um, I think historically you'll see some uh, some data pointing to the planning of highways, you know, how how highways were were decided and delineated throughout the city and some isolation of neighborhoods um, into areas where there's limited growth. And all these things matter, um, especially as Texas continues to experience this booming and growing economy. Um, unfortunately, you know, the growth seems to be disproportionate. The areas that are high income um, have healthy growth, while the areas of low income are, seem to be stagnant. As far as statistics goes, 60% of individuals in South Dallas earn less than $35,000 a year. And that's compared to the DFW average of about 96000 So you can see that there's already a drastic difference there. In Pleasant Grove specifically, about 85% of the households are food unstable. So it's it's really no surprise that the average supermarket sales, when you, when you think about it, um, south of 30 are up to four times less than the average supermarket sales for the entire county. And this is consistent with data showing that the majority of sales in the southern sector are made by families of low income. So the, you know, when, when we think about how uh, supermarkets and grocery stores rate their sales by by cart size. It, it's probably um, a much much lower percentage for some of those areas. About 20% of the Dallas County population overall faces food insecurity and lacks the needed access to fruits and vegetables um, in their diet. And the sad truth is that food insecurity is having and continues to have long-term effects on children. You know, currently, um, according to data from the Food Trust, over 49% of children in Dallas County are either overweight or obese, uh, and that's due in part of a lack of access to nutritious foods. If we think about it, you know, while the average person in the U.S. spends about 6% of their monthly income on groceries, the residents of food deserts like South Dallas 
because of high prices and limited options, spend on average two to three times as much. Families who are living in an apartment, for example, can't buy in bulk to save money or they don't have an extra freezer to maintain food. And even when food is donated, they may not have a place to store it. So it's really about perspective. It's about understanding that healthy eating requires preparation. It's purposeful behavior. Uh, So we can all raise our hands to that and say that we've been guilty, right, of taking the quick and easy route. This is Tawani Cruz. She's the Director of Community Health Improvement at Texas Health Resources. We are talking about food deserts and food swamps. More on these social drivers of community health that affect all of us next on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And welcome back to the human side of healthcare. We're continuing our conversation with Tawani Cruz. She is director of community health improvement at Texas Health Resources for Dallas and Rockwall counties. And we're talking about this very important topic of food disparities. Steve? You know, as we began this conversation, I said it was one of the social drivers of health. And I know you know in your role in community health improvement, we look at poverty, we look at education, we look at transportation, we look at food insecurity. And you mentioned uh, the food deserts and especially the food swamps really contribute to the obesity rate of many of our young people that live in these communities but also children that don't get food and are hungry. A child at school who's hungry is not going to learn. That's going to impact education. It's going to impact health. All these social drivers intertwine, don't they? Absolutely. So we've talked a lot about the problems, and the problems are extensive. But let's try to flip and be a little positive on some solutions We know it's going to take a community buy-in. It's going to take support from different organizations. Can you elaborate a little bit on solutions that you see or would like to see to address these issues? Sure. Um, You know, this is interesting because sometimes we think about the most visible solution, which is to put a grocery store where there isn't one. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately, we forget that ultimately healthy eating is a choice, right? So the same goes for community gardens. Sometimes we want to do something nice without considering the burden it may be to, you know, for a local community to ensure the upkeep of the garden or to, you know, to be able to manage uh, a community garden and provide the resources for water and, and um, food and, and, and everything else that's necessary to keep a garden going. So one of the things that at Texas Health we've learned over the years of working with local partners to deliver solutions that are specific and relevant to communities is that standalone efforts are much harder to keep alive. And so we have to have relationships and partnerships that matter and that are long lasting. And when it comes to local programs, there's there's really three questions that we ask ourselves. One, is it something that the community wants? You know, who did we bring around the table to help make those decisions? Two, is it a source of pride? Will people be motivated to participate and help it grow? And then three, are you in it for the long run? You know, making transformational change doesn't happen overnight, and we need to recognize that. 
Um, earlier, I mentioned that the corner stores are contributing to poor health outcomes because of access to unhealthy foods. And, you know, one of the things that we've done at Texas Health Resources is really to try to think creatively outside of the box. So because of this uh, situation with the corner stores, does it mean that the store should stop selling those foods? Not at all. Um, in fact, it's a great opportunity for um, individuals to work with those grocery stores to introduce fresh and affordable foods because those are locations where people are accustomed to frequenting. Uh, we have also taken the approach of integrating resources rather than creating new uh, community-based touch points. We work with local organizations to address social determinants of health and, and providing direct and indirect support. So one example that I wanted to share is um, the development of an in-school grocery store uh, in partnership with Linda Tut High School in Denton County. This is not Dallas County, but it's an example of something that we're thinking about expanding. Uh, it's actually a public-private partnership model that provides food and essentials such as toothpaste, shampoo, um, for students who may have limited resources at home. Interestingly, the grocery store is actually a complement to an overarching project that focuses on resiliency training and focuses on getting youth quality, uh, improving youth quality of life and teaching them to view life challenges as opportunities um, and, and ultimately decreasing stress and anxiety, which is, you know, behavioral health is an area of interest of ours. Uh, so we're currently exploring expansion of this model into other schools, and we're partnered with, uh, specifically in Pleasant Grove, with A-plus charter schools. Uh, we've identified two sites there and, and are looking for funding to advance this work in Pleasant Grove. Um, recently, one example of how this has already started um, moving and, and, and growing is that Albertson committed some financial support to establish one of these grocery stores within Delay Middle School in Louisville. And so we look forward to opportunities to expand these partnerships further out into Southern Dallas. Um, the other example I wanted to share is that we're leveraging existing programs to provide wholesome support to families. Uh, through an initiative called Yes Dallas, we're teaching youth about healthy meal options and healthy eating behaviors. We have live cooking demonstrations where youth and families can learn how to make healthy meals. Uh, we provide cooking utensils and equipment to low-income families who may not even be able to afford the simplest things like measuring cups and a good baking pan. And in partnership with the North Texas Food Bank, the YMCA, and Mark Cuban Heroes Basketball Center, we're exposing families to diverse nutrition education resources such as grilling, gardening, um, and other activities. And so this is a great example of how Texas Health is engaging with families while also um, partnering with local organizations to help uh, these communities thrive. But we know that we can't do it alone, and, and we really don't want to. I think we all need to work together um, to create some unique solutions that are specific to these communities. Um, one of the initiatives that, that Texas Health has undertaken for South Dallas specifically is called Well Together. And while we're focusing on reducing depression, we've really designed a community-centric uh, program where folks can access counseling services within other community centers and um, at places like Brother Bill's Helping Hand in West Dallas, Salvation Army, Pleasant Grove Corps in Southeast Dallas, 
they're able to connect with those services, but that also drives participation to those community centers who also provide uh, a grocery store and, and different types of food distribution options. And so helping increase the overall impact. There's, there's a number of other efforts that we are still testing and um, that may be beneficial to South Dallas in the future. One example uh, that we're doing in Fort Worth is called the Double Up Food Bucks program, where SNAP recipients double their savings on fresh produce. Um, because one in nine Texans depend on SNAP uh, for food assistance, it's really an interesting opportunity to work with local grocers and farmers markets that are interested in making a positive impact. So these are the types of, I think, collaborations and initiatives that really help to address the, um, the specific needs of the community, but also work together with other community partners who have resources and we're able to leverage those resources for the better good. You know, you mentioned uh, a lot of the organizations that do good work. You know, I've talked to several college presidents, and many people may not realize many college students face food insecurity. And most of the large universities have food pantries. I'm sure you knew that. Absolutely. We actually work with the University of North Texas at Dallas, who has a mobile food pantry program. Um, and there's a, there's a number of other resources uh, in Southern Dallas as well where we can access free food. You know, you've done a great job of explaining food deserts, food swamps, food insecurity, To our listeners out there, what message would you like them to take away from your discussion, especially if they know of someone who is in that type of situation? Well, Steve, I think you mentioned it earlier just a second ago in that there's a lot of organizations out there doing a lot of great work to help reduce the food insecurity burden in Dallas. Um, It's not a simple problem to resolve, but we know that each person can contribute And even if there's someone who's been able to access a resource and knows of a place where folks can get, um, you know, free or reduced cost foods, share it with someone. If you know of a resource, share it. Um, What we hear the most in the community is that people are not aware that despite, you know, our efforts to spread the word and communicate, information still tends to miss a lot of people. Um, and so if you, if you are in need of help, if you want, you, you can reach out to a local nonprofit organization and ask for assistance. More often than not, if they don't have a resource for you, they'll be able to connect you, connect you with someone who can help. And, of course, you can always reach out to our community health improvement team at Texas Health by um, emailing us at thrchi at texashealth.org. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. And Tawani, we can't thank you enough for educating our listeners and updating them on some of the problems in food insecurity that we've all got to pitch in and work together on. Thank you for being on the show. Absolutely. You know, we are committed to improving the health of the communities we serve, and we thank you for um, providing us with this opportunity. Uh, Thank you so much. Tawani Cruz, Director of Community Health at Texas Health Resources, thank you for enlightening us on this very important topic that we might not have thought about or been aware of. Now, when we come back, did you know that there is a new medical school in Fort Worth? There is at TCU, and we're going to meet two of the people heavily involved in keeping health care right here at home. That's next on the human side of health care. 
Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. And welcome to The Human Side of Healthcare. We're delighted that you're with us today. And you know, today, Thomas, we're going to talk about a really interesting topic. It's the TCU and UNT Health Science Center School of Medicine. You know, we saw with COVID, obviously, essential and non-essential businesses. And we know one of the most essential of the essential is healthcare. Anybody considering a career in medicine should perk their ears up right now. Absolutely. And we're delighted. We've got Dr. Stuart Flynn, who's the dean of the TCU and UNT Health Science School of Medicine. Dr. Flynn, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. You know, many of our listeners may not really understand. I know you've been working hard for several years on this, but can you explain to our people this partnership between TCU and the UNT Health Science Center? Yes, uh, very quickly, trying to capitalize on assets of both universities, obviously one, a, uh, a, a renowned uh, predominantly undergraduate institution, but very student-centric for starts, and that's TCU, um, with a, a nationally recognized business school, very established uh, school of science and engineering, uh, a very established uh, and, again, renowned nursing school, and then blended that with um, UNT Health Science Center, which has uh, many of the healthcare disciplines that are critical, for instance, to interprofessional education and where we're going with interprofessional healthcare delivery. You know, I know, Dr. Flynn, that we were lucky enough here in this area to recruit you, but you came from another medical school and you came here to start up this medical school. What were some of the initial challenges you had to face? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge, I mean, just, just to highlight what you just said, I spent most of my career at Yale and left to go to Phoenix, Arizona to start a new medical school there with, uh, for the University of Arizona, which is housed in Tucson and has a medical school in Tucson. And the issues are quite similar, and that is both um, Phoenix and Fort Worth did not grow up as a high-end healthcare academic community. And and I'm going to be honest, that may sound like a slight. It's exactly the opposite from my point of view. We get to grow that up with our community to kind of grow where healthcare is going rather than inherent inherit where it's been. And I'm, I'm just very, very serious about that. So big obstacle was, you know, great healthcare in Fort Worth, but not necessarily uh, focused on the academic side of it. And then lastly, and critically was both an opportunity, but but something we needed to grow. And that's graduate medical education. And that was a big incentive for me to come here because it was just so obvious that that was just ready to take off. Just out of curiosity, your incoming class, what's going to be the approximate size of that class? Yeah, so we um, drew up this curriculum to really be at 60 students. And I won't go into the depth of that, but as the class size gets bigger, 
obviously the more revenue you make from tuition, but the downside is you start to learn, lose that very personal training component. And, and as, as you know, Steve, training doctors is a very faculty intense and you need that, that kind of one-on-one time. So we have taken 60 students the last two years. We are going to admit 60 students this year and we don't anticipate that growing. You know, that's terrific. So in a three-year period, you're turning out 180 new physicians here in the state of Texas. That's fantastic. What a goal. And I like the part of the individual attention that you give these students. Let me ask you this. You've been at Yale. You've been in Arizona. Now you're in Fort Worth. As you look at young physicians and as their students and then graduate, what gives you the greatest personal satisfaction? Yeah, that is a phenomenal question. I've spent my career, and it's not about me, but really loving my interactions with medical students. So I ran Yale's curriculum for a lot of years. Obviously, we designed a curriculum in Phoenix. To answer your question, here's what gives me tremendous satisfaction. These young people, for as many hits as they take from a generational perspective, um, enter medical school with an empathy that is sky high. They want to care for their fellow humans. That is no different than when my class started. So I love that for all of the naysayers these young people still want to give. And Steve, you know as well as I do, you do not enter medicine to have an eight to five job, to make a ton of money, to retire early. You enter medicine because you wanna care for others. Um, And then what gives me additional satisfaction here in Fort Worth is we're training them to the best of our prediction of where healthcare is going again, rather than where it's been. So those two things in combination to me just excite me to no end. You know, that's such a terrific answer. And as as I look at the success of this partnership between TCU and the University of North Texas Health Science Center, in addition to the work you've done with that school, there have been tremendous partnerships that you've built in the community. When you look not only at Fort Worth, but North Texas, what do you see as some of the greatest assets we offer you? Now, again, a great question. So I'll start with the present and obvious. First of all, just phenomenal health care delivered in Fort Worth in North Texas. So what a great ecosystem to enter into to build a new medical school. Then opportunities, very collaborative. I am just so impressed by the collaborative spirit of Fort Worth. And I mean that across the board, but definitely with our healthcare partners. Um, This kind of willingness to work together, and I know this sounds silly because you just don't say this about other cities with, with academic medical centers, the ability to work together And by that, I mean in the graduate medical education world and also what we're working on in the research world, working with industry. This is just unbelievable to me. I'm not to pick on cities, but 
I could not do the GME in Phoenix like we can do the growing GME here. Um, in addition, kind of couldn't do the research um, uh, component as we can do here. So just um, love the collaborative spirit and love the fact that that in Fort Worth, my partners have not put up um, fences around them, but rather have said, where can we do things together? And I love that. Recognizing they're still competing. That, that's a given. And for our listeners, GME is Graduate Medical Education, which is training in a clinical setting after physicians finish their formal education. You know, Dr. Flynn, we've got many listeners, and I will give you an opportunity to give a message to the young people, as Thomas said, that are considering going into medicine. What would be your message to our listeners regarding going into medicine and your advice to them early in their career? Yeah, I love that question. So I would, um, I'll be very forthright with you. First of all, if you are just thinking of sticking your toe and considering going into medicine, or maybe even worse, if that's the pinnacle because it shows that you're an exemplar in, in academics and getting grades and the like, not, not good reasons to go in. I, I think you have to have a passion for this You have to because you're going to get buffeted. You have to have a desire to want to be a huge asset for your patients and for your community. And I, I just couldn't be more sincere about this. And then secondly, anticipate that healthcare is going to change quite dramatically, even early in your career. And when it does, don't be threatened by that. But I'm going to say just the opposite. When it does, you start to own it and you start to control the destiny of where healthcare is going. And if you have that moxie and that mindset, you are a perfect individual to consider going to medical school. And I will tell you, Steve, we have a lot of people talking these young people to not go into medicine. And you and I get it. It's a hard job. And so when young people can overcome that kind of headwind and still want to go into medicine, my job and our job is to let them know what the future looks like how hard you're going to work, the significance of what you do, the huge reward for what you do, and the huge asset you become for your community. You hear all of that and you want to go to medical school, you've got the right stuff from my point of view. What great advice. And to our listeners out there, I hope you will heed it. Is there any question you wanted me to ask that I didn't? I would only say, and you're going to cover this with Mike, but I would just say, that I believe Fort Worth is the last big city in the country that can start GME and grow it like we're doing. And because all the other big cities are taken and they're split. So I can't tell you, this was the cherry on the top when I took this job. My job was to start a medical school. But the real excitement, in addition to that pipeline, was to grow GME and grow GME for the future also. This is huge for our community. And I would even dare to say this will improve how healthcare is delivered in North Texas. Dr. Stuart Flynn, thanks for telling us about this exciting new medical school in Fort Worth. Now, after medical school comes residency, and we're going to talk to Mike Sanborn, president at Baylor Scott & White All Saints Medical Center in Fort Worth, because they are playing a key role in the residency program. 
That's next on the human side of healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted that you're with us today, and we're going to continue discussions related to medical education, medical schools, the partnership between TCU and the University of North Texas Health Science Center. And we're delighted that we've got Michael Sanborn, president of the Baylor Scott and White All Saints Medical Center in Fort Worth with us. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate you having me on. You know, when we think in terms of physicians and they have to go to medical school, sometimes our listeners may not understand that when they finish medical school, they have to participate in graduate medical education and a residency program. Can you help lay a little groundwork and explain to our listeners what those types of programs are? Absolutely. And yeah, I think a lot of people don't really recognize that after four years of medical school and once they graduate, they are physicians that are eligible for licensure, but a physician cannot practice in the United States until they have completed a residency program. And residencies exist in all types of different specialties and non-specialty areas. The most common, for example, for primary care are family medicine, pediatrics, or internal medicine. But then all of the other programs, if you are a physician and you want to be an anesthesiologist or you want to be a pathologist or you want to be a, you know, any, any other kind of uh, physician, cardiologist, then you need to complete a residency in that area. And even sometimes after that, a fellowship for more advanced training. So most all physicians have to do a minimum of three years of training after medical school and sometimes as much as seven or eight or even nine years, depending on whether they specialize or not. You know, Mike, it's really a blessing here in North Texas, especially Fort Worth, or we're going to have 60 physicians going into residency. And I know some of them are going to Baylor Scott and White All Saints to complete their graduate medical education training. You bet. And Dr. Flynn and I have been talking about this for more than three years now um, because it's a very important part of the medical school. And, and we're certainly grateful to have a formal affiliation, but that affiliation also is very important to any graduate from any state medical school and really anywhere else. And so our program was designed to really complement many of the things of the residency programs, uh, also known as graduate medical education. It was designed to complement many of the programs that already exist in Dallas-Fort Worth and fill some holes that needed to be filled in various types of education that did not exist. So this first year, we are starting with internal medicine. We're going to have 15 residents joining us. So these are physicians that have graduated from medical school that are going to come here for internal medicine training. And for those 15 spots, we had over 1,900 applications. 
and selected 15 and and six of the physicians that are coming are coming from Texas and the other nine are coming from nine other states. And so really a diverse group of individuals. And then the following year, we're adding three new programs, uh, emergency medicine, OBGYN, and a transitional year program, which is designed to, it's a one-year intensive training program for various specialties that's required. And then the year after that, we had surgery. And the year after that, we have anesthesia. And so all of these are really important additions to DFW and, and certainly to the Fort Worth area. You know, those are some great points, Mike. And I think something you said, 1,900 applications for 15 residency slots. Many times physicians have a real problem finding a residency slot. We're so delighted that these are going to be in Fort Worth because physicians tend to establish their permanent practice very close to where they do their residency. Any thoughts on that, Mike? Yeah, the statistics on that are pretty clear, uh, and, and there's actually an organization that tracks those numbers. But if you do a residency in any state, you're about 60% likely to stay in that state to practice. If you go to both medical school and residency in a state, 81% of the time you stay in that state to practice. And Steve, when you think about it, it makes perfect sense because life goes on. You're you're perhaps buying a house, perhaps getting married, perhaps having kids during the seven to 10 years that you're doing your medical school and your residency training. So things happen. You get to like your neighbors, you like the restaurants in town, different things like that. And so it's logical that you would want to stay because you've developed some roots. So what we're hoping in Fort Worth, especially with this partnership with TCU, is that the students go to medical school in the area and then stay in Fort Worth for their residency training. And then if, if I could get even close to 80% of them staying in the Fort Worth or even the DFW area to practice, that would be fantastic because we absolutely have a significant physician shortage in Texas. I believe we're 49th in the United States for primary care. So we need to keep as many of those physicians in Texas as we possibly can. You know, Mike, it's been a dream for a long time to have this medical school in Fort Worth. In your position as a president or CEO of a major healthcare system, what do you think are really the benefits that have come to Fort Worth? And what are some of the future benefits of this medical school? I think the benefits are huge. I mean, of course, when it's all said and done, we'll have about 150 to 160 residents in training here at All Saints. But more importantly, uh, the 60 physicians that graduate from there aren't just going to come to the residency program here. They're going to go to residencies all over the state and, and all over the country. So it really does have a significant benefit as it relates to physician supply and the healthcare that people rely on each and every day. But also just adding to the number of opportunities available for physicians to get additional training and the partnership with the TCU School of Medicine is just so important because it really allows us to expand things like research. I can tell you that my medical staff here is thrilled with the opportunity to have more academic involvement. So to be more involved in teaching, which is not something that they anticipated having much opportunity to do uh, when they originally came here. 
So many of my physicians that work here at the hospital are thrilled to have that opportunity. So it really does. And, and I even speak at, at for example, we've uh, had discussions at the chamber about this. The downstream impact of having all these physicians train in this area they're going to go to other hospitals to practice. Baylor Scott and White is not going to be able to hire every graduate of our program, nor would they necessarily need to. So they're going to go to THR. They're going to go to HCA. They're going to go to Methodist. They're going to go to all the hospitals in and around the area. And so that is a huge benefit to the entire economy because they're going to buy houses. They're going to eat at restaurants. They're, they're going to do, they're going to need a, a investment accounts, all kinds of things. And so when you think of the downstream impact, it really is significant. So, Mike, as people look to the future for their healthcare careers, what advice would you give them? Well, I would really encourage anybody that is uh, looking at their professional career to at least consider healthcare. It's nearly 25% of the economy when you include all healthcare types of entities. And so it's a, a large, large part of the American economy. But more importantly, it's growing. Peak Medicare doesn't really occur until 2030. So when the largest number of Medicare recipients is uh, going to be in the Medicare program is 2030. So that's still a ways away. So it's a growing type of business. But I think what also makes it interesting is all of the innovation and excitement around healthcare. We've certainly seen that over the last year with the development of monoclonal antibodies and vaccines to treat the virus that has created this pandemic. And that's provided a way forward for the entire world. There are all kinds of exciting things going on in healthcare. And so I would highly encourage young people that are in college right now to think about healthcare as a potential career path. Mike Sanborn, president at Baylor Scott & White All Saints Medical Center in Fort Worth. Thanks for what you're doing to keep these bright young physicians in North Texas. Steve? What a show today, talking about food deserts, food swamps, medical schools. We really appreciate you tuning in, and we hope you'll join us next Sunday for the human side of health care.